This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tortoise. Hello, I'm James Harding. It's Monday, the 3rd of July. Welcome to the news meeting. From now on, as you may have noticed, we're not just going to do one news meeting week, but two. One comes out on a Monday, the other on a Friday. At the start of the week, we're going to chew over what just happened over the weekend and how it might shape the agenda for the week ahead. And then on Fridays, at the end of the week, we'll look back, try and identify the story that matters most and try and make sense of what's just happened. The premise, of course, remains the same. Three journalists, each with a story that they think matters most. And we'll talk it over. What does the story mean? What do we know? What do we not know? Where does it go? Why does it matter most? And then I'll do what editors always do, decide which one should lead the news. Remember, you can now email us, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com, to get involved. Please do let us know. We've already had some responses from last week's news meeting. I'm going to weave those in as we get further into the conversation today. But for now, let's get started. France is being battered by a wave of destruction that just keeps rolling. This was all sparked by the fatal police shooting of a 17-year-old boy named Nael. His grandmother is now appealing for calm. Twitter users spent Saturday reporting problems on the site after owner Elon Musk said he had implemented new temporary restrictions on how many tweets users can view. The former Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, has been banned from running for public office until 2030. There were ugly scenes at the home of cricket as Australians left the field on the final day. I'm joined today by Tortoise editors Liz Mosley, Charles Wattell and Kerry Thomas. Hello all. Hello. 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 See you. Kerry, welcome. Good to be here. First time you've done this? I'm afraid so, yes. Okay. All right. Well, let's have a go. <laughs> What's your story? My, st- my story is admissions and omissions, which is the story of the Supreme Court ruling on race-conscious admissions to Harvard and the University of North Carolina, but where actually that might go, because I think it's, 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 it seems narrow, but I think it could be huge. Charles, long story short, yours? Sad and bad on the Eastern Front. It's not just not quite happening for the spring offensive, but in large parts of it seems to be going into reverse. Ukraine? Yeah. Uh, going into reverse for the Ukrainians? Yeah. Okay. Liz? Macron in the med. 
I think I can guess what that one is. Uh-huh. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> French riots. <laughs> Got it. Um, well, Liz, why don't we start with you? Because that's the story that seems to have just run, hasn't it? Yeah. Days now. So five nights now of uh, unrest in France following the fatal shooting of a teenager who's come to be known just as Nahel. Um, he was 17. And over the period since uh, he was killed by a police officer um, as part of a traffic stop last Tuesday, there have been over 2,000 arrests. The average age of the people who've been arrested is 17. Hundreds of buildings burned. And so the average age is 17. Correct. Of the people who've been arrested, um, tens of thousands of officers deployed. And the sort of big, I suppose, new element of the story over the weekend was a bunch of uh, rioters set fire to a car and pushed it into the house of a mayor who was a mayor of a district in a Parisian suburb. And what do you think it says about the state of France? And what, if anything, does it say about Macron? So it's difficult to read because here we are in the UK, right? So what we have had is our British media covering this story. What was very striking over the weekend, and I think Simeon Brown's reporting for Channel 4 News has been particularly good at trying to make sense of it. Um, There are these sort of beautifully presented, coiffured, pressed silk shirt representatives of Macron's government, basically saying there is no racism here. Our government has put in everything we possibly can to support people from disadvantaged or underprivileged communities. And um, this is really a discipline problem. In the police um, or, or in the riot, amongst the rioters? Amongst the rioters. It's your mum and dad's fault. They need to discipline you. It's your responsibility. Stay at home. Meanwhile, you have... But, but just to be fair, Macron has been very firm on the police, hasn't he? He, he has, but his representatives don't seem to have that same tonal disposition. Charles, what do you think? I agree that there is a deliberate blind spot here, which is knitted into the French sense of identity. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. It's just axiomatic for any French government, not just Macron's, that everyone is equal under French law. Therefore, ergo, there can be no racism in government, police or anything. Uh, But in the defence of the government, I think the average age... Uh, 17 is significant. I think that the pushback against social media platforms that the Macron government has led is also significant. It's it's fashionable to uh, poo-poo boomerish grandfatherly claims that video games lead to all this. But I think, and and that is probably not the case, although that claim has been made, uh, but but I think the role of social media platforms in spreading the word that um, it's fair game for looting, because there was a, a sort of morph from angry rioting to looting late, late last week. I think that's a big factor. And, um, you know, the macro numbers speak for the government. Um, youth unemployment has come way down on uh, Macron's watch uh, Clearly, there are pockets where it's still terrible in northern Paris, northern Marseille. Um, income inequality is much lower in France than here, for example, or in the US. Um, and there have been big investments in the key neighbourhoods. Clearly, clearly, not enough has been done. But while I accept that there's a blind spot about racism in, in police and in government, um, I'm inclined also to be slightly sympathetic to the to the cross-parent approach. Kerry? I mean, it's, it's a really interesting 
challenge because I think the temptation is to look at 2011 here and read across the France. It's a bit like that. Maybe the same things are going on, and, and in some cases, 2011, as in the London riots, as in the London riots, and um, and all that happened then, and just actually kind of turn away from the story because we've seen it all before on our own shores, and and it, the temptation is to think that it's just, this the same stuff is going on, and some of it will be, but. I think Giles, it's not really a blind spot, is it? It's a, it's a, it's a bigger decision than a blind spot. The French government, the French, French society decides to treat race in a very, very different way than we treat it here. As yeah. you say, we're all French. We don't measure statistics about race. We don't, we don't interrogate race in the same way that we do here. We just don't recognise the difference. Um, so, that a completely different approach than a multicultural approach, and it does lead to these, to these suburbs that ring all the big. French cities, which are which are more separate and more f- distant from the, the French city they go around than anything we've got in this country, I think. And, and I'm uncomfortable, Giles, with your account of it for a different reason. I, I appreciate that the numbers are the numbers and unemployment is where the unemployment is and inequality. But I look at it and think Macron has essentially been hit by now three different waves, distinct waves of public protest. Gilets jaunes, workers saying that their workers' rights, workers' pay is not fair. Pension protests, people saying we don't want you to increase the uh, pension age. And now the Nahel protests. So you've got essentially working people saying the system's not working. Old people, or soon-to-be old people, saying you're taking away our retirements, and young people saying the system's not working for them. That seems to me to say something very different about the way in which people interpret Macron's France from the way the numbers that you describe. I take your point about the economic data, but there is other data you know, if you are of North African descent in France, you're 20 times more likely to be stopped by a policeman and asked for your, your ID. Nahel is the third North African person to be shot dead this year by police. Shot dead? No, not shot dead. Shot. Fatally shot in a traffic oh, stop. fatally shot. Fatally shot. The third, the third as I understand it. Okay. I've not just a second source that, that's uh, in reporting. But I, re- I really genuinely think if you... Th- there are, when, when McPherson was published in this, in this country... we've talked about it on this podcast, not enough has changed as a consequence of that. There was an equivalent book written by a guy called Valentin Gendreau in 2020. He infiltrated French police and his book that he wrote reads like the McPherson Report. There's a there is a very deliberate and yeah absolutely in French police and and French police are routinely armed is the difference. Carry your instinct. If we can, what I feel I haven't heard so far is something that really makes sense of it in the in the context of the way the French deal with race. I've heard a lot of sort of on the ground reporting, but I haven't heard anybody really try to help me understand the, the link through between what's happening and the way the French deal with this stuff. And if I could hear that, then it would lead. Giles? Liz mentioned Channel 4's reporting. I was reading an excellent piece yesterday in The Observer, actually about Marseille, not about Paris. Mm. Yes. That's good. Uh, um, which, which showed that... Um, despite local, regional, national government efforts, there are these no-go zones in, in northern Marseille when uh, police um, won't investigate murders, emergency services won't respond to emergency calls, uh, families are left to their own devices, unemployment is very high, Macron visited, um, surrounded by a phalanx of security, um, uh, and, and it was a sort of Potemkin effort to get at the problem, but the problem's 
clearly remains uh, unsolved. I think, I think you know, contrary to what I was saying earlier, that that points to a systemic, deep problem that could lead the news. Giles, slow progress or no progress in Ukraine? So uh, there's an AFP report. I think it was dropped on Saturday about Russian advances at three points near Bakhmut on on the Eastern Front. Uh, This is where Ukraine has spent 10 months trying to prevent Russian advances. This is where the Wagner group eventually took Bakhmut, then withdrew, and there was a hope that the regular troops either wouldn't take their place or would and would prove less uh, um, resistant than than the Wagner group. That doesn't seem to have happened. Um, Russian special forces, we are told, have uh, taken back a beachhead that Ukrainians um, established on the east bank of the Dnipro, further south, uh, south of Zaporizhia, uh, on the crucial Tokmak axis, which is the route that they want to punch through to get to the coast to to cut the land bridge in half. Um, And then in the background, if I was putting this story together, there are various things that you'd need to fold in. Switzerland, being neutral, so perhaps predictably, has vetoed the idea of a very large um, tank export deal that would have sent nearly 100 Leopard tanks to, to Ukraine. A bunch of French fighting vehicles that are actually in theater have proven to be rather rather hopeless against um, Russian artillery. Um, all the talk about F-16s turns out so far to have been just that. There was a recent interview with um, Podolyak, uh, one of um, Zelensky's top advisors, saying that in principle um, they could have F-16s flying and giving the much, much needed close air support to Ukrainian troops within two months. But that sounds very aspirational to me. And the reason I think this is an important story is that I think because of the successes last year at um, Kharkiv and Kherson, we are all expecting another one now. And we're looking at all the news coming out of um, Ukraine with a confirmation bias, assuming that sooner or later we're going to be told all these Western trained units with NATO equipment are going to punch through. And that's it. And they're just not. Uh, it, it's not happening yet, and they haven't even got to the main line of defence at any point on the front. And uh, all the signs are that they're properly dug in, and it's much easier to, to defend than attack. Uh, two other points. Um, uh, in the background on the Russian side, I think all the talk about Putin being weakened by last week's coup is possibly wildly overblown. Let's just remember Erdogan for, for one moment from, from Turkey. Coup attempt eight more years in power. If he can do it, Putin certainly can. Um, One other thing, two two health warnings here. Um, There's a NATO conference coming up at the end of the week, and it's quite possible that um, the Ukrainian, senior Ukrainian sources that are reporting these these reversals in Bakhmut are doing so to roll the pitch for that conference, to to strengthen the case for, come on, guys, we need more of everything, including fighters. Um, And also the, the other... The other health warning is is the fog of war. Um, we, we are dealing with sort of second and third hand reports of what is actually going on. Nonetheless, it's, I come back to that confirmation bias worry that. And the third health warning is fatigue. So if I have honestly got to the point of thinking that this is a war of attrition, it's long and messy and very confusing, I'm honestly impressed by your understanding of it all, but I can't work out at what point do I look up? At what point do I think, okay, what's happening in Bakhmut is important? So, what, what, honestly, Charles, why is 
the, if you like, the non-movement in Bakhmut important. Does that fundamentally change the balance of this war or the likely outcome of this war? Um, it may be not, and that's precisely it. You get the war frozen where it is, and uh, that is the result that that P Putin now seeks. Liz? Um, my, my, the difficulty with this story is exactly as you've um, expressed. There was a flurry last week. Was it last week? Week before? With the coup? Yes. Suddenly there was a thing that you could get your head around and you could sort of seize on uh, a, sen a sense of something happening in the war. And this... Uh, I, 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 I'm interested in how we, as a newsroom, cover the war fairly um, and avoid the confirmation bias factor um, because I can feel myself seizing on positive headlines to say, you know, the good guys are winning. I can feel, I feel myself drawn to that. Um, I also don't understand, I don't, Charles, do I, I don't understand, Charles, with this story. I appreciate that I should pay attention to it. It's not totally clear that I need to. It's the essential context of the uh, NATO conference in Vilnius, which is at the end of this week. There's an absolutely crucial question there. Well, there are two crucial questions. One is, are they going to pull their finger out and provide air cover for Ukrainian troops? Uh, and the other is, are they going to uh, promise Ukraine fast track membership of, of NATO? So is Bakhmut the story or is Vilnius the story? Both. Kerry? Bakhmut's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because because what I took from Bakhmut when when it was being fought over, sort of <clears throat> hand hand to hand, forgive me, was that that it didn't matter all that much in itself. That it was a, not strategically important. It wasn't a gateway to anywhere particular. That it was just a place that both sides had become obsessed with, and it was about not losing rather than actually um, that it, taking Bakhmut led to anything particular. So I'm interested if you now see it has become pivotal again because it's never felt strategically pivotal. And I guess the other thing is. That I, it's never been clear to me what what the Ukrainian um, plan was through this offensive. Um, you know, what I read was they were going to probe in a bunch of different places and then in the end there'd be some kind of, you know, forward thrust in, in one place or another. And, it, that, you know, and I might think, well, it feels like maybe that should have started by now, maybe it hasn't, but um, I just don't know if it's too early to judge whether to judge on Bakhmut or whether to judge more widely and whether the time is now. I, th I think you're right that um, none of us are experts, none of us are there. I think you're right that Bakhmut was uh, throughout more symbolic than strategic. However, the advances uh, we are told that are being made there do include more strategic places like Liman, um, which, uh, as I understand it, are more important for the control of logistics routes into the Donbass. Um, but... I, th I think there is a clear sense of the I, the best case scenario for this counteroffensive is that it doesn't happen there. Is that it happens to the south? Is it goes from Zaporizhia straight south through um, Melitopol to the coast, and then you just you cut off Crimea? All you have to do then is bomb the coast straight bridge, and you've got the entire peninsula isolated. All right. Well, let's take a moment, have a think about it, and then we're going to come back to your story, Kerry. Affirmative action. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Kevin, before we come to affirmative action, I just want to talk for a minute about the series that you've probably spent more time than you care to admit on Into the Dirt, which is this investigation. Where, 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 where did you get to? So, well, it's an investigation into the corporate investigations industry. So the, so the story in this case is of a man called Rob Moore who um, became employed by them and eventually was sent undercover to investigate whether the, the pretext was were ambulance chasing American lawyers funding anti-asbestos groups to try to provoke bans on asbestos in Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, uh, that, that part of the world. His story is that he took the gig and after a short while he realised he was working for the wrong side so he became a double agent. Um, so he was feeding rubbish back, this is his story, feeding rubbish back to his handlers, um, but secretly uh, feeding useful information to the campaigners. His problem was he never told the campaigners what he was doing. So eventually, inevitably, you might think all this collapses in a heap around him and he be, he's sort of financially ruined and reputationally ruined. And, um, uh, you know, and he, he's been fighting for the last seven years really to try to restore his reputation. I think the, the the wider stuff of interest, actually asbestos is really interesting when you start getting into it. You know, I didn't know it's still the biggest workplace killer in the world. Kills more people than Hiroshima and Nagasaki put together every single year in uh, in the world. Still killing people in this country and there's still court cases going, going through in this country based on asbestos plants that closed 50 years ago. So it's, there's still a lot of stuff going on around asbestos that's really interesting. But that, that whole world of the sort of unaccountable power of the investigations agencies um, and the way they're shifting their tactics, whether they would these days send an, a human being in or whether they would just hack, that's the, that's the sort of um, the, the stuff that we're trying to get to through this series. And what do you make, Kerry, when you sit here and we talk about, if you like, the, the daily run of the news and then investigations like that in effect, into power, into corporate espionage, into the power of business to operate and marshal either people or technology to pursue its ends. What do you make of the news operating in two, if you like, totally different registers? Things that matter, the way power plays out, gets essentially crowded out by things that just happened. That, that, partly that, but I think, I mean, there's worth there's room to wonder with the corporate investigations agencies whether the really close links between that world and this world, between them and journalists, are part of the reason they haven't been investigated as they should. So there a lot of journalists go into that world. A lot of stories come out of that world to investigative journalists. So you, so you wonder sometimes whether the motive to, to really press for further investigations, more accountability is really there. Well, I hadn't realised that. Yeah, I mean, you'd have come across stories in you know in the past that have come from these people, and certainly if you're the investigations editor of the of a big newspaper, that's that's a fairly common trade, isn't it? 
Ah, oh, there's that whole symbiosis there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Let's let's get to your story. And um, by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't listened to Into the Dirt, do. Kerry, affirmative action. Okay. So, uh, so last week, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled uh, unconstitutional and illegal um, the admissions programs of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. It's more story you might think, but actually, I think this judgment is uh, alongside the abortion ruling is probably the. The, the most significant one the Supreme Court has has taken in the past past few years, um, because in the end it means that uh, U.S. colleges, uh, US, the U.S. education system, effectively cannot deploy affirmative action in order to redress imbalances, socioeconomic imbalances, achievement imbalances between the students who who come forward to it every year. And so it's being seen in effect as the end of affirmative action, which has a history going back to 1978. And formally, for the um, for the colleges, I think that, that that's what it is. The question is whether they will now find ways to work around it, um, or whether actually it will it will reset the clock on on admissions in in quite a sort of destructive way. I think some of the mechanics of the thing are really interesting as well. So the case is brought by a group called Students for Fair Admissions. They're not really students. They're run by a, an interesting man called Edward Bloom, former stockbroker, who became a kind of who's been a long-running activist in this arena of student admissions for um, many, many years now. So this case has been coming. It wasn't a surprise that the Supreme Court went the way that it did last week. And it's been framed because it went on the sort of traditional 6-3 Republican supermajority against the, the three uh, Democrat-appointed minority on the court. I think it's been seen as a sort of uh, run-of-the-mill part of that sort of culture war um, that the Supreme Court has sort of found its way tiptoeing into. And also as, a, as an argument between white students and black students about access to um, higher education. Whereas actually the interesting thing is I think that it's, it's, there's a more subtle thing going on here than just a sort of 6-3 culture war within the Supreme Court. And there is, um, there is a group that hasn't had enough attention but is crucial to the Supreme Court's ruling, which is the Asian students who were discriminated against as part of the admissions policies of those two universities. And, and just explain that because... The Edward Bloom role in this, the effort of a long time, by now relatively elderly white campaigner in Florida, puts one version of events at the front of mind. There's another, which, as you say, is young Asian students who feel as though they've been held out of places at Harvard and uh, UNC. Is it the case that the court wasn't just making, if you like, a reactionary judgment, that it was trying to understand the impact that affirmative action was having on people of other races. I, I think it was, wasn't it? Asian students, Latino students. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it, I mean, it's certainly been characterised as reactionary. And so, so the Democrats have characterised it as, as deeply reactionary. But, but the figures are really incredibly telling. So, you know, as you know, in America, uh, students sit a, a SAT test, a standard assessment test, and everybody's measured on that. And, and the results are divided up into deciles, tenths. And if you look at Harvard admissions, if you're a, if you're a black student who comes in the fourth decile of that, that, those achievement tests, you have a 12.8% chance of getting into Harvard. 
in the fourth decile. If you're an Asian student in the fourth decile, you have a 0.9% chance of getting in. And, and your, your chance of getting in in the first decile if, as an Asian student is 12.7%, is which is lower than the black student's chance of getting in in the fourth decile. <clears throat> so the court, that was one of the... That was one of the statistics that John Roberts quoted in in his judgment. And it, I think it, the, the level of affirmative action in favor of black and Latino students and the way that played against Asian students in particular was something that the court, I think, found hard to support. Liz, what have you made of all of this? Yeah, it's a, it's a thorny one. Um, and as I understand it, the sort of uh, commentators who have been... Um, observing this story for years, as you say, it's gone on for years, um, who argue quite strongly that affirmative action um, is sort of admirable in intent, but in the way it was deployed, particularly at Harvard, it wasn't doing its job. Um, have sort of a, 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 a hit list of all the other things that Harvard could do. If it was really genuinely serious about correcting, you know, righting the wrongs of history, it would channel some of its multi-gazillion dollar endowment into free prep academies that would funnel black, Latino, Asian, you know, poorer white Americans, whoever it would be, just funnel them, funnel them through the doors. It chooses not to do that because it suits Harvard to have all of its other exceptions. It's here you go if you're an athlete or here if you go if you're a brilliant musician or whatever it would be, um, or the son of somebody who teaches there. So it, there are some sort of compelling arguments um, against um, I was my eye was caught thinking how this is going to play beyond the universities and out in the corporate world for example my eye was caught by again I can't say this isn't causative there's not there's no causative relationship here but on the 30th of June so was it last Friday um, the uh, heads of diversity and inclusion they all have slightly different job titles but what we would recognize as a DEI leadership position um, all women of color the people who held those positions at Disney Netflix Warner Brothers and the Film Academy all left they all quit on the same day yes so there are circumstances in each one in that co- are different oh, it's a coincidence yeah so there's it feels to me that there is something in this whole corrective um, culture that we've become used to in the last sort of five years or so, something isn't working. And I just think it's interesting to see how, how the next two to three years is going to feel for that. Charles? There's a really interesting parallel between this and what we're talking about in France, which is perhaps appropriate since they had revolutions about the same time a couple of centuries ago, um, which is it, it's a divide between the world as it, people, as idealists want it and the world as it is. And Michelle Obama captured it quite well in a statement that she put out just after the ruling, in which she admitted that as a beneficiary of affirmative action, there was, I think she said something like, a cloud over her accomplishment to this day, she feels. Uh, But at the same time, she said that there was, in her view, no doubt that the blunt instrument of, um, my phrase, not hers, of affirmative action had ensured that tens of thousands of people like her had got opportunities uh, which they wouldn't have got otherwise and which um, which they made the most of, which which they deserved. Um, I think to, to Lizzie's point, um, what you have unaddressed is de facto affirmative action for rich whites at Harvard, mm. which remains in place. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I know that we could keep going, 
but we've got to try and make a call. Um, you each know, actually, Kerry, you may not know, the deal here is everyone has to choose a story that they think should lead the news, but you can't choose your own. So why don't you go first? Which would you lead with? I have to choose one of ours. You have to choose. You can't choose yours. I can't choose mine. And you but can't I have to pull another one, one in. And you I can't. can't well, I didn't like any of those. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. With the cricket. Then I'm going to go. <laughs> then I'm going to go with France because I think maybe we could do it properly. Charles, ditto. Liz, affirmative action. Interesting. Well, actually, this is a curious one today because uh, I think that it's clear that Ukraine is the third story. It's really important, but it's one of those watching brief stories rather than turning point stories. And I think the interesting thing is that at the start of the week, you run it uh, low in the running order because you're flagging up Vilnius and you're flagging up the choices that the West is going to make in terms of provision uh, of air and artillery support. But I'm really torn about affirmative action and France. The reason I think, Kerry, in the end, you're on affirmative action as the second story is that it is, as you say, a judgment on a particular set of cases that is quite narrow. It's an important signal, and I think it opens a big debate about historic injustice versus modern interpretations of justice. But it's in that interpretation that it happens. And the reason that I'd probably lead with Liz's choice of France is that I feel as though what's happening just across the channel is the same story that is bubbling up here, is going to dominate in the US presidential elections, is a fundamental set of questions around the model of the West. Can it work? Do we have enough money to help people into employment, to deal with housing? And the combination of gilets jaunes protests for working people, pension protests for people who are reaching retirement age, and now young people who are saying, we've got a youth employment and opportunity problem, and we've got a structural racism problem. All of those things feel to me like something that we need to pay more attention to. So for that reason, I'd run France Affirmative Action and then Ukraine. Kerry, Giles, Liz, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you most of all for listening. Uh, obviously, um, you wouldn't be the only ones judging by the faces across the table here who disagree with my decision. If you do, please do drop me a line, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Someone wrote to me over the weekend, actually, to say that we'd got something wrong on the Nicola Bully conversation last week. If you remember, this was the story of a woman who, it transpired, had fallen into the uh, into a river, um, drowned. And there was a huge, I think, three weeks worth of news coverage in the UK speculating on whether she disappeared, had she been murdered. And fun enough, an editor at another news organization got in touch to say, the news meeting conversation was really interesting, but we missed a critical thing. At the very beginning, the police had said, most likely she's fallen into the river. But of course, that wasn't the narrative that captured people's imaginations. And so... If you're listening to this and thinking, uh, as this person did, yes, I understand that argument, but you're missing something critical, either in the stories we've discussed or a story we should be discussing, please drop us a line, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com, and we'll make sure to pick it up. We're going to be back, as I said, second podcast of the week. Join us for the news meeting on Friday. Between now and then, have a very good week. Tortoise. 
But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.